From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm resident housing nerd and investigative reporter Kelly Knoyer. Thank you for joining us. Cities, they're where we live, play, and work. But they're also a bit like living, breathing organisms. When they lose population like Detroit has, they start to wither and die. But when more people move in, they're dynamic, growing entities that spread out or rise to the skies. Wilmington has gone through booms and busts in its long history, and it's in a boom right now. But not all growth is good. It has to be molded and shaped to make sure the city continues to prosper and isn't clogged with interminable traffic. On today's show, we'll dig into the past and future of Wilmington with former planning director Glenn Harbeck. Then later this hour, we'll walk through some more avant-garde theories on public planning. I mean, did you realize that downtown areas are subsidizing the suburbs with their taxes? There are all kinds of invisible subsidies built into urban design, and it's about time we shine a flashlight on them. If you can't tell, I love thinking about this stuff. And hopefully by the end of this show, you will too. That's all coming up later this hour, but first we have an update on one important element of a city, affordable housing. For that, I've brought news director Ben Schockman into the studio. Hey, Ben. Hey, Kelly. So you've been continuing our accountability reporting on the Wilmington Housing Authority. So what's the news this week? Well, I went to the most recent WHA meeting and then sat down with board chair Al Sharp the next day. The WHA is basically still in the same position. It's fighting two main issues. First, they can't seem to get enough contractors to help get units that have had the mold removed back online. Basically, reconstruction to put everything back together so people can move back in. And second, they're running out of money to house tenants who have been displaced. We don't have exact numbers. WHA declined to discuss that until they present at city council, which is uh, expected to be on March 1st, although that's not set in stone. So not knowing those numbers is pretty frustrating as a journalist. But we can say that there are still roughly 100 families displaced, maybe more. And the bottom line is the situation is not sustainable. Yeah, I mean, even the cheapest hotels are at least $80 a night, and hotel rooms have actually ballooned in costs recently. That's not going to improve as we move into tourist season. Right. And WHA confirmed that hotel managers are sometimes hesitant to rent to large numbers of WHA tenants, especially mothers with a lot of kids. Uh, There's the same problem with commercial apartments, which WHA told me is where they'd way rather put displaced families. To me, it seems blatantly discriminatory, since WHA's money is as good as anyone else's and they're paying market rates. But since they're businesses, I mean the the hotels and the apartments, uh, WHA can't force them. It's leaving WHA in a bind for where to put these people next. So what's the plan? WHA is asking the city and the county, as well as those in the development community, to basically lean hard on hotels and apartment management companies. But even if that works, they need money. They've applied for nearly $13 million in emergency HUD funding, but even that might not be enough in the long term. Mm. This is already a crisis, but we're reaching a tipping point to something even worse. No public official has been willing to say this on the record, but we could be looking at trailer parks or some kind of tent city. I I don't mean to sound drastic, but we're headed for a cliff. That's just unimaginably awful. What's the city doing about this? Hopefully, we'll see a discussion about this in March when WHA presents to council. Right now, there's been some discussion of renting places from Cape Fear Collective, but there just aren't enough units. In the meantime, WHA has discussed using housing vouchers. Basically, the authority is restructuring the rating system to allow displaced families to get ahead of the waiting list, even if they're already on that list. WHA is expected to announce that soon, and we'll have coverage of it when they do, but again, vouchers may not fix this problem either. Right. Why is that? 
Well, the housing market is bustling, and that means vouchers just aren't as competitive. We've had rents go up, I think you told me, 23% in the last five years, and a lot of that has been in the last year. As Al Sharp told me, when the markets are in a slump, vouchers work great. When it's booming, not so much. Yeah, I mean, my landlord threatened to raise my rent by $400 when my lease is up, so I know it's super competitive. How do vouchers work now that they can't compete as well? Well, when a lot of people are trying to rent the same apartment, a landlord is going to be more inclined, or probably more inclined, to go with a renter who requires less paperwork. HUD has very specific guidelines for what housing is acceptable, and during downturns in times of low demand, getting any renter might make jumping through these hoops worthwhile. But when the market is this competitive, it's a disadvantage. Aren't they also pretty limited? Yeah. The way it works is that those vouchers are basically a subsidy, but the family still has to pay the difference between that and the rent. That means each significant rent increase is largely left on the family's back, and they have to try and scrape together, you know, an extra $200, $300. That wouldn't be happening if they lived in just regular public housing. Right. This really shows how the crisis at WHA is connected to the bigger issue of affordable housing. And it reminds me of an economic housing concept called filtering, though these days advocates prefer to call it cruel musical chairs. Yeesh. Do, do I want to know what that is? I mean, I do. What is that? It's this way of describing the housing market, which is a market that everybody absolutely has to participate in. It's not like you're shopping for a boat or something and can just decide not to buy a boat if boat costs go up. You have to get housing or you end up in the streets. Okay, but what's the musical chairs part? Okay, so imagine three families. There's one that's rich, one middle class, and one working class. In an ideal world, there would be a big fancy house for the rich family, a medium-sized house for the middle class family, and maybe a small house or a townhome or an apartment for the poorer family. But in a town where there's a housing shortage, like here in Wilmington, there maybe isn't enough of a supply for any of those levels. So in this metaphor, everyone is going around in a circle looking for a home, and when the music stops, a certain number of rich families settle for medium-sized houses because they can't get the McMansions that they want, and they can pay a little bit extra to win that bidding war. Then the middle-class family settles for the smaller house, and the poor family got beat in that bidding war, and where do they go? I, I don't know. Are they, are they homeless? Do they go to a rural area? Right. I mean, it kind of pushes the lowest-income families out of the community, makes them commute maybe 45 minutes into Wilmington for their service jobs. And this isn't just happening to restaurant workers. Police, nurses, and teachers are all being pushed out of Wilmington. And as we've said before, this county will need more than 23,000 new units of housing to accommodate expected demand. By 2025, that's in three years. Yeah, no wonder my rent is going up. Yeah, it's really something. And maybe our listeners are hearing something familiar. I mean, I've had a neighbor move out and downsize recently. He's not the only one. Rich families are moving into townhomes on the north side and spending a million dollars for a building with shared walls. That kind of thing was unimaginable in this region a decade ago, but it's rapidly becoming the norm. And I'll tell you, as someone who has lived in Portland, Oregon, this kind of housing crisis can lead to tent cities. In cities like Seattle and Portland and San Francisco on the West Coast, average working families are just one unexpected expense away from living in the streets. We're lucky that hasn't become the case here yet, but the data shows that we're not too far away from it. That's scary stuff. It is. But I appreciate you coming in with this update and listening to me talk about housing theories. We'll be getting a lot of that in this episode. Okay. I gotta say, it's a lot easier being a guest on this show than the host, and uh, I can't wait to see what's up next. Yeah, we'll see when you get to host the newsroom ever again, Ben. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Coming up next on the newsroom, we've got a lovely conversation with Glenn Harbeck, the brain that will shape development in Wilmington for decades to come. <laughs> 
One of the reasons we can end up with a housing crisis is because of poor land use policies and bad urban design. Building costs are accelerating these days too, but any developer will tell you that land is the biggest cost for any new housing. That's why I decided to bring in Wilmington's former urban planner, Glenn Harbeck, to discuss his tenure at the city. He's pushed Wilmington a lot further down the road to sustainable development with his comprehensive plan, in a way that will facilitate more housing, better transit, and a healthier city for decades to come. Let's get into it. I am Glenn Harbeck. I am the former recently retired director of planning, development, and transportation for the city of Wilmington. So tell me a little bit about what Wilmington was like when you first got here. What year did you get here as well? I arrived in Wilmington in March of 1979 as a young recent graduate from the UNC Chapel Hill program in city and regional planning. Bill Ferris was the planning director at the time, and he hired me as a senior planner for long-range and comprehensive planning. That, that was March of 79. It was quite different then. Hmm. So what was Wilmington like? Without any interstate connection like I-40, it was pretty quiet. You had to want to come to Wilmington. There were about three different ways that you could get to Wilmington. They were all equally inconvenient. If you were in the Raleigh area, you would be either stuck behind a truck or stuck behind a bus, and uh, usually just two-lane highways. So um, at that time, Wilmington was um, a pretty sleepy town. We were a population of about 44,000 people, and the population was declining. The uh, census showed that we had actually lost people, that people were leaving the city from the previous decade, from 70 to 80, and it was continuing to go downhill. So it was not uh, a growing community. It had its financial struggles because of the departure of people. There were challenges with the tax base and funding the city's programs. So it was, uh, it was not a, a rosy time for Wilmington in 1979. Mm. So what changed? Well, I think everybody would, would say right away that the biggest change came in 1990 when I-40 finally opened to Wilmington. Prior to that, uh, Wilmington was the only standard metropolitan statistical area on the east coast of the United States with a deep water port that, that was not connected to the interstate highway system. So we struggled for years, as I understand it, to get funding from the General Assembly to fund some sort of connection to the interstate system. And finally, that came in 1990. Interesting. So is that why you would always get stuck behind trucks on the way from Raleigh? <laughs> well, without the interstate, yes. Um, I guess I'm curious as far as how was the city growing in that time, um, like before and after 1990? Yeah. Um, good, good question, Kelly. Prior to the opening of I-40 in 1990, the financial strategy that the city had to employ to improve its financial situation was to annex. And so uh, a major initiative in place starting in the early 80s, really, and continuing right on through until about 2011 when the General Assembly uh, pulled the legislation that allowed for city-initiated annexation, uh, the primary growth strategy of the city was to annex. And that's the way uh, the city could increase its tax base and provide for increased services. And honestly, that was probably a good policy at the time because 
the people that were living in the immediate suburbs around the central city were sort of getting a free ride. They were enjoying all the services of the city where all all the shopping was and the the parks and uh, so on and so forth, but they were not paying any any city taxes. So that was probably a pretty good situation, pretty good policy for its time. That changed, like I said, in 2011 when the General Assembly uh, pulled the legislation that enabled city-initiated or involuntary annexation, as it's called. So, but I think that was good for the city, too, because starting in 2011, we had to think very carefully about how we made use of the remaining land in the city, either for development or redevelopment. I mean, that is something that's pretty unique about this area, how limited our actual physical land capacity is. Do you want to speak to what that looked like at the time? Yeah. Um, you know, we're, we're one of the smallest out of 100 counties in the state, New Hanover County is uh, with, you know, we're bound on the west by the Cape Fear River, on the east by the ocean, uh, on the north by, I think it's the northeast Cape Fear River. And, of course, to the south, it just dwindles down. I, I, I consider New Hanover County shaped like South America. So that's the way I picture it. It's, it's kind of big and bulbous at the top and pointy at the bottom down by, by Fort Fisher. So now that we don't have as much land that's vacant to develop, Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about the strategy that you had with the Land Use Development Code to make the best use of the land that is left? Yeah, another good question. The emphasis of the Create Wilmington Comprehensive Plan, which was adopted in 2016, was to focus really on redevelopment, adaptive reuse, infill development, and all the things that were actually we were due for because um, much of our city, particularly outside the older parts of town, was not developed with the best buildings, uh, the best appearances. So it was an opportunity, really, to think down the road. It was estimated at one point, I think, nationally, that starting in, I think it was 2010, looking 25 years forward, that about 80% of all suburban commercial development was going to be redeveloped in the next 25 years. So... We knew that was coming. Uh, it has been coming. It continues to be that way. And so we are seeing a lot of our less expensive, less invested uh, suburban buildings being demolished and replaced by uh, new buildings that are hopefully better designed, address the street better, uh, better use, more intensive use of the land where we've got limited land. Is that specifically for commercial buildings or also residential? Well, it's proven true for residential Coming out of the Great Recession in 2012, that's when we really saw the huge upswing in multifamily development. And that was a reflection of of really market conditions. We had limited land. We had tremendous demand for housing, especially housing that was affordable. Construction costs were high. Labor costs were high. And so the market really shifted to to multifamily development. So that was our biggest challenge for much of the last decade was to how to deal with this tremendous demand for multifamily development. Interesting. Uh, I guess this is maybe kind of a thought experiment, but if you could design a city from scratch, what would it look like? It would look like the 1945 corporate limits of Wilmington. It It would look like our downtown And it would look like our gridded street system out to about 17th Street, south to Greenfield Lake, north to Smith Creek. That is really a walkable. Oh, I'd also throw in Sunset Park. Sunset Park, it was a streetcar suburb 
that had um, relatively compact lots, uh, homes at front of the street, at functional front porches, great street trees. Even though Sunset Park, when it was developed, was not in the city of Wilmington, it would certainly be considered a very urban-type neighborhood. So yeah, I would, I would look at the older part of Wilmington, the 1945 corporate limits, as really a, a great design for a city. So if it's a larger city, um, say the same population as Wilmington, but you get to redesign the rest of the expanse of Wilmington, uh, what would you make it look like further out? Yeah, you got some great questions. <laughs> um, Andreas Duani, who is a very well-known architect slash planner for the last what would be the last 30 years, really, he said recently that what we really need to be doing with our cities is building a system of small villages artfully crafted together. In other words, the model that we've been working with since World War II is a sprawling sort of single point center with more or less commercial shopping districts uh, out around the perimeter and separated automobile-dependent residential developments, which is a, a basically a recipe for heavy traffic. If we could develop a larger city in a series of mixed-use centers or villages where everybody had, there's something called the 15-minute city right now, and if everything that you need is available within a 15-minute walk of your home, then that's the ideal arrangement for a city. I was talking with a long-term resident of Wilmington the other day who grew up in the Sunset Park area, and he was talking to me about how, as a kid, there was a hardware store, a corner store, a restaurant, access to Greenfield Park and the, and the path around Greenfield Lake, a, a very walkable and bikeable neighborhood. It had all the elements of a uh, small village. And I guess that's why I like uh, Sunset Park as an example of, a, of kind of a nice neighborhood. Hmm. You know, what you're describing about these small villages connected together, that reminds me a lot of Portland. Portland is really known for having these, we call them historic main streets. So essentially, it's this strip of more commercial historic buildings that have restaurants, small businesses, uh -huh, that kind uh -huh. of thing, occasionally small grocery stores, and then neighborhoods behind them. So those are scattered throughout most of Portland. Uh, so that's kind of what I'm picturing when you describe that. Yeah, and I, I have never been to Portland. It's on my bucket list. It's got a lot going for it, a good transit system, compact development. It's got, I know it's block structures. There are only 200 foot blocks. In Wilmington, our blocks are typically around 330 feet. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that uh, Portland is a very compact, walkable city. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Newsroom on WHQR. I'm reporter Kelly Kenoyer talking to former Wilmington Public Planning Director Glenn Harbeck. I'd love to hear your thoughts on public transportation um, and how that interplays with these smaller, walkable neighborhoods that you've talked about. Great. Good, good question. I want to point out a, a false perception that a lot of people have about transit and cities. Oftentimes, the perspective that you hear is that transit should serve development. And even when we were doing the comprehensive plan for the city in, in 2015 or so, we would hear from neighborhoods out in the suburbs, for example, saying, yeah, I'd like to have bus service out here. But the reality of it is bus service needs density. Bus services need revenue, and revenue comes from ridership, and ridership comes from density. So I'd like to turn that perception on its head and not say that it's the function of bus services to serve development, but rather 
it's our job as a city and our planning department's job and my job when I was there, our job is to promote development that supports transit. So when we look at higher density developments in the city, they better be adjoining a transit line because that's what's going to help our transit service over the long haul. That's what makes it financially possible to be viable. It also makes the service uh, capable of coming by more frequently. We, we need to be focusing on more frequent bus service between places where people want to go. That's, that's, that's it. And that needs to be in the more dense parts of our urban area. I know that a lot of existing neighborhoods are worried about density. They worry about the traffic problems it could cause. Uh, I'm curious about what, what you would say to that concern. Yeah, that's a perception based upon the post-World War II separation of use model. It's, it's, it's one where if you build a city so that you have to get into a car for everything, whether it's taking your kids to school or doing your grocery shopping, whatever the case might be, if you have to get in a car for everything, that's the problem. With it. That's what causes our traffic problems. So the problem is not density at all. The density is actually a good thing if it's put in the right places and if it's in the right form. If you have density close to services, if you have density within a walking distance of a school where people are not so dependent on cars, that is a very good, and it gets back to that village model where instead of having a huge, sprawling, center-pointed urban area where everybody has to converge on the, the center of the city or on the few commercial shopping centers scattered about the perimeter, that's not good. Uh, so it gets back to that village concept, really. You know, that brings me to connectivity because uh, a lot of times when we have these hearings in city council or the county commission for a new development, um, neighbors will come by and say, we don't want this to connect to our neighborhood street because it could bring traffic. Um, but you just said that your ideal model of a city is this grid system that we have downtown. So can you talk about connectivity and what that actually means? Yeah. Um, the advantage of the grid system of our city is it doesn't concentrate all the traffic on just one or two streets. There's lots and lots of options. That if, if traffic is backed up on one street, you can go to a different street. And so long as people mind their business and pay attention to the to speed limits, which is a perennial problem, uh, it, that model works very well. So we really want to uh, encourage connectivity. One other important point about connectivity, however, is that connectivity does not work after the fact. You can't go into a neighborhood after it's already been built and say, okay, now we're going to break out a, a street from your neighborhood into a new area next door and connect it to a larger area. That doesn't work. You have to do it from the get-go. And so some examples of that is down at River Lights, for example. That community is being designed from scratch. So when people buy their homes, they know exactly where they're buying. They know what level of connectivity is occurring around them. In my case, when my wife and I bought our home, we were delighted that the back of our neighborhood was connected to the rest of the, of the city around it. We hadn't even built our house yet, and there was an initiative to, to close the street that connected us to the rest of the, of the neighborhoods around us. And my wife and I stood up sheepishly at the Homeowners Association meeting and said, you know, we bought into this neighborhood because we really like to be able to have our kids ride their bike to school or ride their bike to their friends in a different neighborhood nearby. So thankfully, my wife stood up strategically 
and said, well, if we're going to close that street, can we at least leave the, the opening for, at that time, rollerbladers, skateboarders, bicyclists, and pedestrians? And that's what happened. And that's been a saving grace for, I think, the walkability and the accessibility of our neighborhood to get to other parts of the city without having to get out on, on a major road. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate your time. And I think the city of Wilmington's going to miss you. Well, Kelly, I appreciate that. And I appreciate you as a reporter. I think you've always done a great job. You and CC Nunn at the Wilmington Business Journal are, are two of my favorite reporters. I think you do a very balanced reporting, um, showing all sides of an issue. And uh, I really appreciate it. You, you found a home here in Wilmington. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> That was Glenn Harbeck, the former planning director for the city of Wilmington. Coming up next on the newsroom, we'll dig into the great suburban experiment that is America and what that looks like here in Wilmington. Stay tuned. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm Kelly Knoyer, your guest host and WHQR's resident urban planning nerd. Glenn Harbeck mentioned the 1945 corporate limits of Wilmington as his ideal city, but that's a bit hard to parse if you're not an urban planner. So let's outline where that is. Wilmington in 1945 was bordered by Greenfield Lake to the south, 17th Street to the east, the Cape Fear River to the west, and Smith Creek to the north. Why is that Glenn's favorite part of town and mine? Well, it's the place where the city developed before cars began to rule the roads. Development patterns before 1945 were more focused on pedestrians than anything else. Residents needed to be able to walk pretty much anywhere they needed to go on a given day for a city to be functional. There were small shops, grocery stores, and pharmacies all along 4th Street on the north side, and similar development on Front Street downtown. If you walk through these historic neighborhoods today, you'll see that few homes have garages, and most are settled in close together, their porches right next to the sidewalk. It's a very neighborly lifestyle, I can attest. When I read on my porch on the north side of town, I end up chatting with all kinds of people who pass by on foot. This historic boundary also encompasses much of the grid system in Wilmington, other than the loopy roads next to the lake, of course. It simplifies traffic patterns where cars are involved and makes the city more easily navigable than in the maze-like neighborhoods in the suburbs, where roads don't connect and each isolated neighborhood spits cars onto an arterial road. More on that later. These development patterns aren't just an issue of walkability and lifestyle. The new suburban experiment of a car-based development pattern has implications for the fiscal solvency of every city, Wilmington included. I mean, fundamentally, the issue is distance. The issue is in a place designed to run cars, everything is further apart. The buildings are further apart. The residential lots are bigger. People have larger lawns. That's Daniel Harridges, the senior editor of Strong Towns, one of my very favorite websites. A lot of it we don't really perceive because we're so, it's not just that we're used to this development pattern, but we're used to navigating it by car and moving at car speeds. Harridges and all the other folks at Strong Towns are deeply interested in what makes a city a city and what makes a place habitable and even enjoyable. He says the impact of cars on our city is often invisible to us unless you know what to look for. You can go to just about any Walmart store in America and the parking lot is much, much bigger than the store itself. It's often about twice the size. And if you look at an aerial photo, you can see this very clearly. 
when you're on the ground, you don't necessarily think about it because most of your time is spent in the store, not in the parking lot. Walmarts and other big box stores are an advent of the modern era. They didn't exist when everyone walked everywhere in the late 19th and early 20th century or when they could hop on a streetcar to get downtown. There were no parking minimums, no sprawling parking lots, and that meant a lot less infrastructure was needed to support the same number of people. The same buildings that are serving the same needs. You know, people always shop for groceries. People always, you know, had lawyers and doctors and the the professionals they needed to visit. We always had schools. But the same uses that serve the same needs are now just occupying much more space and they're all spread farther apart from each other. It's fundamentally what the suburban experiment is. The suburban experiment. America has been a testing lab for cities ever since the invention of the car. In older cities in Europe, development came slowly over the course of centuries. But America has moved at a breakneck pace with new technologies, and all of it is experimental. We don't know exactly what happens to a city that grows through suburbs over the course of centuries because we haven't even hit one century of that kind of development yet. But some very smart folks have some good guesses. And it doesn't look great, at least when it comes to maintaining all that sprawl. Ultimately, public investment in a place, in the roads, in the pipes, in the street lamps, and everything needs to be backstopped by private wealth being generated in that place. That's where you get your revenue. What does that mean? That the tax revenue of a street or building needs to be able to sustain the maintenance of that infrastructure. In a downtown area, that's not a problem. A lot of apartments and homes are close together and highly valued. But in the suburbs, not so much. This is getting a little wonky, so let's use an example to illustrate. This was an example. It was in a Minnesota town of um, a cul-de-sac that needed to be repaved. Harridges says that project cost $350,000 to redo. So how long would it take the residents of that cul-de-sac to pay off that project if they alone were going to fund it? It's a cul-de-sac, so it obviously only serves the people who live on it and no other residents. And then based on the city budget, well, how, how much of that tax money per year is actually going into public works? How much of that is going toward infrastructure? It would take 79 years worth of tax revenue from the properties served by this cul-de-sac to actually pay for the repaving of the cul-de-sac. That's just the pavement serving a few houses. And pavement only lasts about 30 years. Think about the pipes, the electric wiring, the stormwater infrastructure, and all the other things that public dollars fund in your neighborhood, and how much each extra foot of those things costs. It's an astronomical gap. And this is what Harridges calls the suburban Ponzi scheme. You can't take a loss on 90 percent of transactions and expect to make it up on the other 10 percent. You can't take a loss on every transaction and expect to make it up in volume. So if that's a cul-de-sac, if that's a relatively simple, inexpensive street, and that pavement isn't going to last even half of 79 years, and it's going to take 79 years worth of revenue to replace, if you scale that up across an entire city, you have a problem. To some degree, commercial areas buoy the budgets of suburbs. Taxes get pushed off on businesses, and homeowners get a bit of a break. But when 90% of the land in many American cities is taken up by a single-family zoning, the math gets harder to manage. Cities can push these problems off with further expansion. When a developer creates a new neighborhood, the developer generally pays for the initial infrastructure, then passes it over to the city for the ongoing maintenance. That means a sudden infusion of new tax revenue, but an even larger burden on those revenues in 30 years' time, when all of that stuff has to get replaced. And so, like, there's no one answer that's going to apply everywhere. But at some point, the economic realities are going to catch up with us. And that is the the message that we've tried to push at Strong Towns is if you don't have enough money to maintain everything you've built, then it won't be maintained. 
and we can use debt to push these problems off into the future. But we're going to hit a point where we can't do that anymore. That's where the term suburban Ponzi scheme comes from, coined by Strongtowns. We're not suggesting malevolent actors, um, but the way in which growth for many cities resembles a Ponzi scheme is that we build more infrastructure, more public investment to support growth. So the roads, the sewers, the streetlights, all of that, then is actually supportable based on the taxes coming in from that growth. In some ways, New Hanover County will be forced to manage this problem more than other regions would. Because we're hemmed in by water on every side, there's a limit to outward expansion. We eventually need to build up. Some of that density will be built in, thanks to the comprehensive plan Glenn Harbeck has left us. That plan is set to create hubs of density throughout the city where commercial areas and housing can develop more intensely in the midst of suburban sprawl. Some of those areas are already a bit bigger, Independence Mall and the New Hanover Regional Medical Center, for example. But these newer developments are still defined by wide swaths of concrete parking lots, which require significant infrastructure to support, hundreds of extra feet of pipes, electrical lines, and sidewalks to support all of that parking lot. It's not just that the buildings, which are spread far apart, require more resources for their infrastructure. They also tend to be worth a lot less when it comes to taxable value, so they're bringing in less revenue even as they require more investment. Wilmington Downtown Inc. paid for an economic analysis of Wilmington way back in 2013 with the help of Urban 3, an Asheville-based firm. The founder of Urban 3, Joseph Minicozzi, gave that presentation and spoke to me more recently for this story. If I build a cheaper building and make it really cheap, then I've reduced my cost. And then if I make it cheap and continue to pay low taxes over time, I continue to pay less than that person who bought the expensive building or that person who's had the brain damage to go off and rehab a whole piece of historic architecture. So that person that's actually doing something better for your community, we penalize them by making them pay an annual fee that's more expensive. And it's not even connected to the cost of the community. Minnie Cozy told me that the average cost per square foot for your area Walmart is about $75. A house costs an average of $172 per square foot in Wilmington by comparison and is far more attractive to look at. When we built cities back in the day, there wasn't a thought to how this all operated because we didn't have the sophisticated finance, the Excel spreadsheets, all of that stuff. And most money was local. So the people that built downtown buildings all lived downtown. So they, they actually felt embarrassed if they built a piece of junk, you know, because it was like everybody saw it. You know, Joe, why did you build that ugly building? It's like, all right, fine. Now we have this nationalized money system and they really don't care. It's just moving money around so that the world has changed financially. Our systems of paying for our government haven't. And so shame on us for allowing people to just come into our community and underbuild or give us junk or whatever. And we're just we're giving them a tax break for consuming our real estate. There's a simple financial mechanism that resolves this problem of misused land and would rid a lot of cities of the endless vacant parking lots and strip malls. It's called the land value tax, and it's an idea that's been around since the 1800s, when there was also a lot of immigrant pressure in cities. Just because your, your family was the Copleys and they stepped off the, the Mayflower and had access to the real estate, they got lucky. And they could sit on all that land and speculate. Meanwhile, the city's growing up. Now, if you think about the 1800s, there's a tremendous amount of immigrant pressure going on. Housing prices are going through the roof. So there's lots of demand. And you can go downtown Wilmington and find vacant land there. So the pressure is there. 
Yes, he's talking about the 1800s, but it sounds familiar, doesn't it? There's an awful lot of vacant land in northern New Hanover County owned by some of the oldest families in the region. There's, there's need for housing, yet I could own that land and do nothing with it. Meanwhile, you as a community have invested in the pipe, the road, the garbage truck still goes by. All of that cost is there, and I'm paying you incredibly low taxes. So at the very least, we should have a tax that captures all of that value that you put into it. And if somebody chooses to do nothing, great, we're at least getting our money back. Well, when you do that, you change the dynamics of the real estate economy that that land isn't going to sit there because people are going to be paying the true cost of holding that. To talk out some of these ideas, I took fellow reporter Camille Mojica for a drive around Wilmington, a tour of our suburbs and our strip malls. Good morning. Good morning. I already have the mic out. How are you? (laughs) I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. We measured the width of a Walmart parking lot and enjoyed the dubious beauty of its sprawl. What would you say if I told you that per acre, this Walmart is worth one-tenth a downtown building? What? Per acre. What? The tax value of it. It's because it's a crappy building on a parking lot. It's unimproved land, relatively, you know? Okay. The taxes that you pay are on the improvements on the land and not just the land itself. It's mostly on the improvements on the land. So if you have an empty lot downtown that you haven't built anything on, it gets taxed really low. But if you have a house on there, it gets taxed really high. And if you have like a crappy house that's a teardown, it gets taxed less than a beautiful house because the beautiful house is worth more. If you are the owner of that land, then you are incentivized to not improve it because you don't want to pay as many taxes. Walmart is incentivized to make ugly buildings on big empty parking lots. It's actually required to do the big empty parking lots in most towns because that way they get taxed less. I wish you guys could see my face right now. (laughs) That feels like such a cheesy... I I should explain what I mean by cheese. In gaming terms, cheese is like how you cheat something, so you you cheese it. That feels like a very cheesy thing to do. So they have to pay less taxes. So let's keep this ugly and improved poorly, so that way we pay less taxes. These numbers are a bit outdated because they're from Joe Minicosi's 2013 presentation on Wilmington. But that Walmart off College Avenue is worth about $806,000 per acre, at about 33 acres. The downtown core, by comparison, is worth $5.3 million per acre. Certain buildings downtown, like the Water Street Center condominiums, were worth $34 million per acre back in 2012. That has a waterfront view for sure, but another apartment building, 801 North 4th, was also up at $18 million per acre. These aren't skyscrapers. 801 North 4th is the modern baking apartment building, which is about four stories with built-in underground parking. But the value of these buildings is far higher because of the density involved and the care taken in constructing them, and they're taxed accordingly. But what if this city changed its incentives and taxed land instead of buildings? Imagine what the new growth would look like, how the city would change over time. It might be as simple as new infill, parts of that Walmart parking lot getting sold off and developed into new shops or apartments or a hotel. Or it might mean a dilapidated house next door to yours can finally get a facelift because it won't cause the taxes to go up. Here's Minnie Cozy again. When you move into your community, is anybody measuring the pipe that goes to your house and sending you a bill for a cost of all that infrastructure? No. 
Like, why do we operate cities so sloppily? So we have this totally arbitrary system of financing our cities. And this model is showing you the waste that we're putting into it. There are a lot of implications that come along with that urban development pattern. It's not just about the tax base and land use. It's also about traffic and connectivity. After the break, we'll hop back into the car with Cami to explore some of Wilmington's suburbs and the traffic implications that come along with all those winding suburban roads and cul-de-sacs. Stay with us. Welcome back to the newsroom. I'm your host and reporter, Kelly Knoyer. The suburbs. They're all over New Hanover County because they developed in stretches and tracts over the course of nearly a century as Wilmington grew to the east and the beach towns stretched out towards the west. Now they've met in the middle in a complex maze of meandering roads. I've been venturing into a lot of these neighborhoods lately thanks to my recent addiction to Facebook Marketplace, and they all have a lot in common. The suburban streets rarely have sidewalks, and the houses are set back 20, sometimes even 40 feet from the road, with large and untouched lawns out front. I always end up in the neighborhood by turning off a larger thoroughfare, and that's typically the only exit. It's part of the reason our traffic is so bad. All of the people who live in those suburbs have to pull out of that one exit to get where they're going. I decided to show this phenomenon to fellow reporter Camille Mojica the other day. We started in a little cul-de-sac called Randolph Road, which is very close to the hospital. All right, so Cami, can you describe this location that we are at right now? It's a cul-de-sac. There's only one road. There's a couple of houses around here. One thing I'm noticing is actually only four houses are actually served by this cul-de-sac. And if you look to your left, you can see the hospital through those trees. Yeah, I. that looks real close. And That's real close. It's real close. And there are no public walkways through it, and it looks from this side like it's fenced off. We'll have to check the other side to see. But let's see how long it takes to get to that road over there, okay? Wait, wait. So, <laughs> if an ambulance comes around here, it has to drive all the way out of this neighborhood? It has to drive all the way out of this neighborhood? to get to the hospital that is less than a football field away. Let's time it. Let's time it. We drove for several minutes through residential streets, avoiding cyclists and joggers who didn't have sidewalks to run on. It was a maze of curved roads and random turns. Okay, we've made it to 17th. So to go the 500 feet, from that little suburb, we had to go all the way around a full two miles to get onto 17th Street so that we could turn onto Ambulance Drive. Turning onto Ambulance Drive now. minutes 57 seconds and 76 milliseconds wow okay we drove a bit further around ambulance drive and could see the houses from the street that had taken six minutes to drive from 
if this hospital was on a grid, it would have been a one minute drive to get there. We would have been here by now. Uh, okay, now we're driving past those houses. We're seeing their backyards. Uh, you can literally see this road from their upstairs window, the house that we started in front of. But there's this giant like eight foot tall brick wall and there's no cut through. The closest way to drive, the absolute closest through back driving uh, through the neighborhood is 2.2 miles to get 500 feet. What do you think, Cammie? I would not want to be in an emergency. <laughs> I would not. It doesn't, it just doesn't make sense to me, especially if it's a hospital. You'd think that a hospital would want to allow the surrounding suburb to access it easily. I think it's actually the choice of the suburbs to not access the hospital uh, because they don't want to have anybody driving through their neighborhoods to get to the hospital. That is typically what we hear when we're looking at uh, new developments, new neighborhoods being put up. Uh, suburbs don't want to be connected to the surrounding areas because they want privacy, but that means that there's all of these weird isolated islands of meandering maze-like roads throughout Wilmington that do not have access to the amenities right next to them. It's very strange, but it's also an extremely common development pattern in America. You can see this in pretty much any American city. See, this is the part about suburbs that always confused me. I understand wanting privacy. However, I feel like they take that very far sometimes. Like they will jump through so many hoops to make sure that no one drives through their suburb. That's the American dream, baby. But there are uh, externalities to those choices that people don't really think about. Like the fact that that person, you know, that ambulance had to go all the way to 17th Street and make two right turns to be on 17th for all of 100 feet. That's causing weird traffic problems on 17th Street for a person who is directly next to the amenity that they're trying to get to. And think of that as hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trips each day, you know, for each of these suburbs where they could have walked if there was a path, where they could have driven just 500 feet if they had mobility issues or if they didn't want to walk. They would have been able to do that if there was connectivity, but that's not an option because everything is closed off and walled off. So the traffic gets worse when neighborhoods insist on being so secluded. But those externalities like traffic, they go a lot further. Here's Urban 3 founder Joe Minicozzi. Well, the, the bigger your lot, the more frontage you have, right? The wider the street, the more f concrete you buy. It's like, so, so when people say like, hey, Joe, I don't want to have traffic. I want to live in a cul-de-sac. It's like, well, great. You've also just externalized all of your impacts into some other neighborhood. And that includes the tax burden. Minnie Cozy talked me through the average costs for a residential neighborhood compared to the relative taxes and showed that the large lots surrounding cul-de-sacs are extremely well subsidized. Residential areas and grids are also subsidized, but much less so. Even though they're the same number of houses, it's almost two times the subsidy, 1.8 times the subsidy for that suburban neighborhood. It's pretty standard in the U.S. for commercial areas to be taxed at a higher rate, but the same amount of housing developed in downtown Wilmington on the grid requires substantially less of a subsidy than those meandering, maze-like neighborhoods in Midtown. So it's like, you know, I want to be six foot tall and have a full head of hair. I think you should pay for it. Like, what kind of nonsense is that? But yet we've allowed that to happen in our community discourse. So here's the question. Is it truly a market demand if you're giving it two times a subsidy? 
Or are people just figured out like, hey, you're going to give me extra infrastructure and I don't have to pay for it? Who wouldn't take that deal? So that's where we're at right now. But it's not inevitable. The region could emphasize connectivity, move towards a land tax, or try to develop with more density through incentives. But it's all a matter of the future we want to build and what it may look like. Glenn Harbeck has set up Wilmington with a model for density hubs, which may help with some of these externalities. Some have suggested increasing the density in suburbs with townhome developments, granny flats, or duplexes or triplexes. And having more mixed-use zoning can help with walkability by creating corner stores or restaurants at the edges of some of these neighborhoods. So what will Wilmington look like in 50 years? We don't know. But there are a lot of different paths we can take, and some do a better job of addressing climate change than others. Transportation is the cause of 29% of U.S. carbon emissions, after all. And building a city around cars doesn't help with that. But building for public transit or walkability can. It's up to residents and policymakers to decide this city's priorities and to decide its future. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Newsroom. Thank you to my guests, Glenn Harbeck, Daniel Harridges, and Joseph Minicosi for their time and contributions. And thank you to WHQR's Ben Schachman and Camille Mojica as well. Our technical team is Ken Campbell and Jonathan Furnell, and our editor is Ben Schachman. If you missed any part of this show, you can find it at whqr.org, or to get the show as a podcast, you can go pretty much anywhere podcasts are found. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Kelly Knoyer. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.